Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm talking with Paul Majid about the second volume of his biography of the 19th century U.S. Army General George Crook, entitled The Gray Fox, George Crook and the Indian Wars. Paul, welcome to the show. Uh, It's nice to be here. It's nice to have you here. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. Uh, Well, I'm, I'm a retired former attorney. I say it a former because when I retired, I decided I was not going to practice law any longer and that I was going to try to do some writing. Uh, I had worked for the, the Peace Corps and an outfit called the African Development Foundation, and we were doing uh, economic development in the third world. And it was a very rewarding, but at the same time, frustrating career. And I on my retirement, I thought I'd try to get as far away from it as possible. And uh, I had a long-standing interest in the Indian Wars, and so I decided that I would do some reading about it. And then from there, I went to the point where I decided that, you know, if I was going to do all this research, maybe I should write a book. So um, I began to look around for a subject that would uh, tie together a period of perhaps 50 years when the Indian Wars were uh, were taking place. And uh, I saw a movie called Geronimo starring, uh, oh gosh, Wes Studi and um, Gene I can't Hackman, remember. Gene and Gene Hackman, uh, Gene Hackman right, as, as George Crook. And the portrayal of Crook was fascinating because he was both a, a you know, a top-notch expert on Indian fighting, but also was a humanitarian who uh, really cared about the Indians and did a lot to try to help them. And and the movie did get that across. And so I began to do some background research on him. And uh, I read, you know, his autobiography, which was about the only thing that at the time had been written about him. Um, And it was uh, a peculiar document because it gives almost no context and it, it just kind of rambles through uh, the, you know, the incidents of his life uh, without giving you much insight into his thinking or anything else. And it had been put together by a sergeant uh, who was stationed at uh, Carlisle Barracks during the war and had uh, come upon this handwritten manuscript that uh, Crook had written in the latter part of his life and uh, became interested in it and published it as a book with Oklahoma Press in 1946. And that remained until about 2001, the only thing that had been published about the man. Uh, so I thought this was a great opportunity to, uh, you know, to find a subject that I could you know, tie the Indian Wars together, particularly since he began his career uh, on the West Coast during the gold rush in 1852, and uh, served for nine years in the Northwest, uh, fighting uh, 
in the Rogue River and some of the other wars that took place out there that are you know more obscure now, but at the time were were the Indian wars of that period. In 1861, as everybody is aware, the Civil War broke out, and um, he, like all other uh, officers, uh, had to choose sides. And being from Ohio, he was a Union man, and he came back to Washington, and he thought, you know, having he only had reached the uh, the rank of captain after nine years, and advancement was extremely slow in peacetime in the in the um, in the uh, uh, regular army. So what a lot of officers did, including Crook, was to resign their commissions in the regular army and seek to join uh, one of the state uh, volunteer regiments. And uh, that way he could get a, a bump up in rank and authority and, you know, contribute more, uh, more effectively to the war, particularly since at the time there was a real shortage of trained officers and he was a west pointer so he, you know he had that advantage as well and he he talked his way into a, a a colonelcy of a of a new volunteer regiment in ohio the the 36th and from there he rose to uh the rank of major general and corps commander by the end of the war had a very significant career um at the end of that time uh he he decided that you know when the war was over that he would like to rejoin the the regular army since that was the only career that he really knew and um he applied for you know reentry into the into the service and was accepted at the rank of major and uh he was not pleased with that since it was only one one rank up from what he had been before and he had been a major general and corps commander as i as i said so uh he appealed the decision and they you know the board that was providing these ranks uh at the time decided to give him a uh a lieutenant colonelcy and there was a, a new newly created regiment and he was put in charge of that regiment and because of his experience as you know fighting indians before the war uh he was a very important commodity in the um the west they were trying to bulk up their forces because uh the indians were becoming restive and um as being subject to uh you know this increased emigration after the war and so you know they they put him out there in idaho and uh the rest is in my book so. <laughs> You open with him uh, on the boat going to command the 23rd Regiment, and, and it's it's really uh, an interesting opening about how this is man who, who's still in his mid-30s, who is nonetheless going to uh, assume this very uh, heavy responsibility in terms of dealing with the situation uh, in uh, the Great Basin. And I was wondering if you could go into a bit more detail as to the, the, the circumstances uh, of, of the uh, tensions in uh, that region uh, before we uh, discuss a bit uh, the campaign that he waged uh, against the Paiutes? Well, it, it was a pretty typical situation, uh, you know, with regard to the to the Indian Wars. Um, you had the tribes uh, in, the, in the Great Basin uh, living on a basically subsistence level. Uh, there were nomadic peoples, 
and they drifted from place to place hunting and uh, and gathering uh, you know the wild vegetables and fruits that they could to supplement their uh, their diets and all of a sudden you had an influx of white immigration of settlers and in the Great Basin in particular miners because there was a lot of uh, you know a lot of mineral wealth in that area and these people came in and they they not only killed off the game that the Indians depended on to you know for their livelihoods but they also you know mistreated the Indians because they considered them as something akin to vermin uh, the early settlers were a pretty rough lot, and in both California and then again in the Great Basin, um, you know they would exterminate Indians basically whenever they, you know, whenever they could. Uh, so tensions increased, and finally the the, the uh, tribes who, you know, at that point were the Shoshone, the Paiutes, and so on, were you know uh, were warrior peoples. And they were not going to sit by and watch their lands be taken from them and, and to accept the, the abuse from the settlers and the miners, so they rebelled. And uh, the army at the time, as I said earlier, was very thin on the ground and um, had a hard time trying to, you know, to deal with the, with the Indians who were very mobile and knew the terrain, which was extremely rough, and um so it was they were very elusive and uh the uh the uh soldiers would go out on patrol and they were largely ineffective they either couldn't find the indians or when they did um the indians you know would give them a good trouncing uh, so uh by the time crook got out there the uh, the army was was held in contempt by by most people, uh, most settlers in the area, who would prefer to take felt that they could take things into their own hands, and you know there was a lot of vigilantism, which was you know equally unsuccessful in, in curbing the Indian depredations. So Crook found himself in a um, in a situation where his presence was was welcome because of his reputation as a seasoned Indian fighter and um, at the same time he found that his his troops were not as efficient as they could have been there was a lot of drinking uh, there was a lot of um, uh, it was very poor training they almost never got live ammunition for you know for marksmanship so that their marksmanship was was really poor uh, they had no tactic, tactical training, and so he had to embark on a, on you know, not only on a uh, campaign against the Indians, but he had to shape up the the soldiers that he was with. And over the next several years, he was very successful at doing that. It, that really mattered, considering the types of campaigns that he waged. And in reading your book and reading about the campaigns he waged first against the Paiutes and, and, and associated tribes and then against the Apache and, and then, of course, finally against the Sioux, he has a approach that really would, I, I guess you could summarize as attritional warfare. And while and, and uh, it, I could see why it was successful, but you also highlight the demand that it placed upon both the men and uh, the the animals that they had with them, the the uh, the mules that they needed for uh, uh, 
transport, the, the horses, the cavalry rode. And, and you frequently describe through the book how over the course of these campaigns that they, the, uh, they would, you know, be uh, the the soldiers would become gaunt and and they they would they would scurvy was a problem which is not something we oftentimes think about with 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 uh, land forces we think we associate more with sailing ships uh, in in uh, in the eighteenth and nineteenth centuries and, and it really conveys the the demands that were put upon these men and yet you also highlight that George Crook was a man who commanded from the front and he assumed a lot of these burdens himself. Well, that's. That's true. Um, I, I think the, the the main problem in campaigning in in the West, particularly in the Great Basin, was uh, lack of water and forage. And uh, the lack of forage, in particular, meant that they could only go on you know short distances. And he, one of Crook's many innovations as a as a soldier in the West was the uh, the innovation of the pack train. Uh, he was a, he was very high on mules, and in fact he rode one himself, uh, a mule named Apache, and uh, because he found them to be more hardy um, and more uh, more susceptible to the less susceptible to the visages of the you know of campaigning, and um, he virtually wrote the book on campaigning with with mules and um he used them both as pack animals and as as i said as his as his personal mount um the the conditions under which these people operated the soldiers operated was extremely rough um i think what you were referencing with, with the scurvy was the hunger march where during the sioux war where um he was on the trail for about three months and, you know, they, they ran out of, of food to the extent that they were killing their own horses and, um, and eating them, uh, which to a cavalryman was just almost akin to being uh, a cannibal. And, um, so that, that particular March went down in history as one of the, you know, the really, uh, terrible, uh, events of the, of the Indian wars. Um, but you know they they had these experiences as well with the weather uh he introduced a um the whole concept of winter campaigning which up to that time had been you know almost considered an impossibility particularly in in the in the mountain west where temperatures reached 40 degrees below zero and there were huge snowstorms and um he just and the indians at that point um would go into camp for the winter in sheltered areas and uh, you know they would not go out again until the spring when they could fatten their ponies on the on the forage that was available uh so they were they were kind of vulnerable at that point because they were uh, they were not mobile and um if you could find their their camps um you could actually you know engage them which in the summertime and springtime, when they could move about the prairies, uh, was virtually impossible. So he would go out on these winter campaigns uh, with his troops, and um, they would be bundled up in these buffalo robes and stuff just to survive the the sub-zero temperatures uh, and try to imagine uh, trying to fight 
in a situation where you're completely bundled up in a in a buffalo robe uh, so they would they would actually go into battle in their shirt sleeves um, which was you know in 40 degree 40 degree below zero weather is you know almost lethal uh, and yet they they actually you know, accomplished quite a de- quite a great deal. Uh, and winter campaigning, and his uh, aggressiveness in you know in keeping after the Indians and not allowing them these uh, these winter refugees refuges uh, was was a very effective tactic, as you pointed out. You describe as well how in the Great Basin he was under he was facing a lot of political pressure to exterminate uh, the Paiute. He, he's the, the, you mentioned the, the territorial governor was calling for it. Uh, there were local newspaper editors. The, the settlers were, they, they, that's what they wanted. What were George Crook's own views about Native Americans? And, and what was his ultimate intention when it came to uh, winning these wars? Like what, what, what sort of, what was his goal uh, in terms of the, the, the peace that he was seeking to pursue uh, with the tribes he was fighting? Well, that, that's one of the things that attracted me you know, to, to George Crook as an individual. His main, his primary concern was to, was to make peace with the Indians, not to exterminate them. He, didn't, he was not a person who believed in extermination. He saw the Indians. Uh, he himself was an outdoors person. Uh, he, you know, he loved hunting. He loved fishing. He loved nature, and he saw in the Indians a reflection in part of himself. And you know, he saw in their lifestyle a, you know, a worthwhile uh, pursuit. And what he what he tried to do was to um, find a solution that would allow him to uh, subdue the Indians without, you know, too great a hardship on them and get them onto reservations that were really on their own traditional lands so they could subsist the way they had always subsisted, uh, yet not, uh, not uh, get into conflict with the, with the settlers and the miners. So his aim was always to wage uh, ferocious war in order to have a short war, and uh, his, you know, his objective was to, uh, you know, to bring the Indians to the to the peace table. He recognized that as a warrior culture. I don't know if he recognized, but this was this was his thinking that the Indian was a warrior culture. The Indian culture was a warrior culture, and that if uh, if we expected them to make peace with us. They would have to be taught that uh, there was no percentage in making war. That you know that they had met a, a foe that was stronger than them, and so that was his objective: was to impress the Indians with his uh, ability and strength, and the futility of of fighting. You know the the onslaught of white immigration that was filling up the West. That it was inevitable and that they had to make terms with it and uh, they better, you know, they better do it quickly or they were going to have, you know, uh, a, a bad time of it. And so that was, that was basically his objective. 
how how successful was he in achieving that objective with the Paiute? He was very successful, um, and it made his reputation. He uh, basically um, through through the use of you know the use of, of mule trains and the use of Indian scouts, which I could probably get into a little bit more, um, was able to convince them that their resistance was futile. And um, he also, at the same time, was able to secure for them, at least in the short term, reservations that were uh, in accordance with their own traditional territories so that they were not placed in, in places where they would starve to death, which was a later eventuality in, in, in our policies with the Indians. But... Um, Unfortunately, you know, the Interior Department, which took charge of the uh, of Indians once they were on the reservation, um, had a policy of what they called removal and consolidation so that eventually the Indians were taken from the kind of reservations that, that Crook had hoped to secure for them on a permanent basis and placed in much less um, salubrious environments where in fact they suffered greatly and um he you know so his 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 success was short lived in terms of securing for the indians a a permanent lifestyle within you know within the the white civilization um that that was not to occur and you know even today it's you know uh it hasn't occurred you mentioned how the campaign helped to make his reputation as a successful Indian fighter. Was that why he was then uh, dispatched to uh, the Arizona Territory? Exactly. Um, there was a lot of pressure for him to go to Arizona uh, because the situation in Arizona had, had, following the Civil War, had become really uh very, very precarious for the whites. Uh, the Apaches had been fighting uh, intruders into their territory for two or three hundred years and, and were very successful. They had kept the Spanish bottled up in, in small forts and uh, um, had resisted you know, the Mexicans as well. And uh, now they were fighting with the uh, with the white settlers that came pouring into Arizona during and after the Civil War. Uh, again, because one, it was it was a good place for for ranching, and two, because it was uh, you know mineral rich territory. Um, so the governor Governor Safford of, of Arizona was you know, had heard about uh, Crook's success up in the, you know, in the Paiute country and asked that he be assigned uh, to Arizona. And Crook at first was extremely reluctant. Um, uh, he knew something of the, of the, of the conditions in Arizona, having tra- traveled through it during his early days in California. And, you know, it was very extremely hot in the summer and uh, th- there was, it was Full of uh, cactuses and poisonous snakes and so on and so forth. It, it, the way that 19th century American travelers described Arizona, it sounded like hell on earth. 
and and basically uh well, general sherman said we fought one war with mexico to acquire arizona and we should fight another to get rid of it the the situation in arizona was nicely illustrated in another respect which was that crook's predecessor uh colonel stoneman uh was uh you know preferring to command uh the troops in arizona territory from an office in san diego <laughs> right that didn't go over very big in arizona i can he he was yeah, and uh, so eventually uh, the, the army wore Crook down and 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 you know uh, sent him to Arizona, and he was to be the head of a department, and uh, he, his rank was uh, was too low to he was a lieutenant colonel to command a department, so they jumped him over nine colonels of the line who had seniority over him. Uh, to make him a, a brigadier general and to give him that that position, and um, it, it incurred the enmity of of you know many officers of the line at that time because they didn't like the you know it was there was intense competition for uh, for promotion because uh, these the slots at the top of the scale were were very limited and could only be filled after uh, a, a, an occupant either died or retired. And uh, since there was no retirement plan in the Army, most officers didn't retire. So uh, it was very hard to, you know, to get a, an opening for promotion to general. And I think that was probably one of the big you know, influential factors in Crooks deciding to accept that position. It was almost too much to, to turn down. That actually gets to another interesting uh, aspect of Crook's life that you talk about. You, you describe him as something of, of a retiring personality. He was not a uh, he was not the the flamboyant figure that say uh, George Custer was, but he. You also mentioned that he did have a good sense of public of the importance of public relations in terms of advancing his career. And I was wondering if you could I explain that aspect of, of Crook, both his, his personality and also how he is involved with, in a sense, promoting his career through, uh, by bringing in these reporters who provided chronicles uh, of his campaigns. Well, there's been a lot made of his use of newspaper reporters. To my mind, too much has been made of it. Uh, I, I believe that, in fact, uh, you know, he he did use reporters to a certain extent, but no more than any other officer, either today or in those days. Um, you know, I, th I think for career career army officers, uh, advancement is is critical and. Uh, I think after a while they become very savvy as to how that is done. Um, but many, many, uh, not many, but several historians have alleged that uh, Crook took reporters with him everywhere on campaign with the specific idea that they would, you know, uh, talk him up and give him favorable publicity so that he could go ahead and, and you know, and get advancement. Uh, I think that's been greatly exaggerated. It, you know, I went into some detail, of, for example, about the reporters who covered him during the uh, during the Sioux War and indicated that 
all of them came there because they were assigned to the to the job, not because he finagled their presence uh, on the campaign. And that's true of of his campaigns in in Idaho and and again in in, in Arizona. Uh, I think uh, newspaper men were attracted to him because he was uh, an interesting, eccentric, uh, enigmatic figure, um, and he was successful. And when he was around, there was action, uh, and they wanted to cover action for their newspapers. Uh, the newspapers at the time were highly competitive, and uh, Indian stories were, were good press, good copy. So um, while he was, uh, you know, he was a, a man who... Uh, did not like pomp and did not wear the uniform whenever he, you know uh, on most occasions he often wore uh canvas clothing which was more resistant to the rough and ready conditions on the trail uh he rode a mule as i mentioned before instead of wearing military clothing he wore a a, a japanese style pith helmet uh and um he was very uh very reticent uh and as far as sharing his ideas with his fellow officers or anyone else and they often were frustrated by that um his aide john burke who uh served as as his mouthpiece with the press i think to a certain extent um described his his uh staff meeting as uh, he, he goes off by himself, sits on a rock, whittles on a stick for a while, and then comes back and tells the, uh, the rest of his uh, staff what, what they're going to be doing. Um, and uh, I, I think that's pretty accurate. He, he did play things very close to his chest, and it, it did frustrate a number of his, uh, his subordinates. And again, though, he goes in Arizona, he wages these campaigns, and again, he does seem to have considerable success in establishing a degree of stability in the region. And I was wondering if you could explain, though, why it is that his uh, campaigns in Arizona were not quite as successful, though, as the ones in the Great Basin. Well, in fact, they were. Um and uh his his uh campaigns in Arizona in the 1870s were what actually uh made him famous as a as an indian fighter uh, very few people had heard about the great basin uh, outside of the military uh, military uh were aware of his achievements there and that was the basis that they sent him to Arizona but Arizona really put him on the map uh nationally as a, as a as an Indian fighter he he organized a uh, a campaign against the western apaches who were one of the most significant uh uh groups of apaches that were uh you know creating problems in in Arizona uh, that really brought them to their knees within a within a year and a half, and it was that again that comp combination of aggressive uh, campaigning with the very important use of, of Apache scouts to hunt their own people. Uh, he was able because of his knowledge of the Indians and his uh, ability to deal with them to convince 
uh, a number of Apaches to act as his scouts, and uh, they became more than just simply trackers. They became fighters as well, uh, and uh, their uh, their presence was absolutely critical to the to his victories in 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 uh, Arizona, and uh, that and his ability to negotiate with them once once the tribes had been you know had been uh, taught the lesson of just how tough he could be. Uh, he could bring them to the table and, uh, you know, negotiate with them and try to get them reservations again that were, uh, you know, places where they could actually survive. And um, again, he was thwarted in that in that direction because uh, his uh, his efforts to give them, you know, decent uh, lands was uh, subverted by the Interior Department and their removal policy where they they concentrated all of the tribes at, at San Carlos Reservation, which is probably one of the greatest hellholes in, you know, in Arizona. So. You also described, though, there's an additional dynamic that he did not face when dealing with the Paiute, which was the international dimension. Arizona being on the border with Mexico, you had and and how the uh, reservations oftentimes being placed against the border meant that in some ways the, the problem was simply being shifted for a period of time to Mexico and how that was going to be uh, a problem to which uh, he would eventually have to return to address down the road. Yeah, well, um, the Mexican issue was not as prominent in the 1870s, as it would later become during the Geronimo campaigns of the 1880s, and which is this uh, dealt with in my third book. But um, one of the bands of the uh, of Apaches that was the most uh, ferocious, uh, war, the, who were the most ferocious warriors, were the Chiricahuas, and Crook did not have access to the Chiricahuas because they came under the protection of General Howard, who negotiated a separate peace with them. And um, their home country was the Dragoon Mountains, which is on the border with, with Mexico. And they were the ones who would slip across the border and, and commit depredations in in Mexico uh, and uh, at the same time turn around and smile at everybody in Arizona and say, well, see, we're not bothering you. And uh, so that, that was... That was an issue that Crook could not deal with because, as I said, it was, um, it was that was General Howard's uh, purview. And General Howard had made uh, a separate peace with Cochise, who was the the chief of the Chiricahua, and that had taken uh, taken the whole matter out from under uh, Crook's control, and that you know gave Crook a lot of heartburn. As you mentioned, though, he was successful enough to where now he has such stature that he's appointed the head of the Department of the Platte. And I was wondering if you could explain a bit what that res what responsibilities came with that position and what were some of the issues he was dealing with in that part of the country. Well, yeah, <laughs> it gets very com complicated, but um, in the Platte, you had the Black Hills and uh, – Gold was discovered in the Black Hills. The Black Hills had been promised to the Sioux as part of the Great Sioux Reservation 
in a treaty that was entered into with them in 1878 uh, or 1868. And um, the, the army was tasked with keeping miners out of the Black Hills uh, in conformity with the treaty, but it was a nearly impossible task and one that they did not embrace wholeheartedly anyway, because uh, the the country was going through a depression, and you know the gold that would come out of the Black Hills uh, would would help the economy and uh, the you know the whole idea of having miners go into the area was one that was favored by the government, and eventually. Uh, Grant decided that, you know, who was president at the time, Grant decided that, um, you know, the the national interest was really in, in taking a, the back hills away from the Sioux, and um, they needed a causes belli, and uh, so they, they sort of invented uh, a situation where uh, they could provoke the Sioux. Uh, they gave the Sioux an ultimatum. And, uh, you know, that they had to come in and surrender and go onto the reservation by a certain date. And it was in January uh, when the snow was very deep on the ground. It was virtually impossible for them to comply. And, you know, uh, several weeks after they gave the ultimatum date, uh, after the ultimatum date had expired, uh, basically the, the government declared war on the Sioux. And Crook had been transferred there in anticipation of this situation um, a, a year earlier. And so it was his his job really to begin to prosecute this war while the while the government uh, organized its uh, you know its reinforcements in the in the form of uh, an army to uh, go after the Sioux. And so he engaged in what was known as the Powder River campaign as a, one of the earliest campaigns in the Sioux War and, and uh, struck a village which he thought was going to be the village of the Sioux, who were the primary enemy, but turned out to be a, a Cheyenne village. And um, it was an interesting uh, campaign that's described in the book in detail, but it was uh, Basically, it was unsuccessful because the Cheyenne just um, moved out into the into the mountains and escaped uh, escaped the soldiers, and um, they were so disaffected uh, that they joined the Sioux and you know and reinforced the Sioux and were present at the Little Bighorn later on when uh, when Custer met them. It was a really interesting section of the book in that you intertwine both Crook's uh, campaigns against the Sioux and other tribes, you, but you also get into some of the uh, relationships that Crook had with the uh, other uh, officers in his command and how a lot of those uh, relationships were defined by the degree to which they would uh, – criticize or blame each other for the failure to uh, achieve certain goals. I was thinking particularly about the, uh, the, the battle of the Rosebud where uh, the, you describe how, you know, years afterward, they're, they're, they're still arguing with each other over, you know, what they, you know, that they weren't, you know, at a certain place at a certain time. And that's why the, the battle turned out the way that it did. 
Yeah, I, I, the friction really started at the at the Powder River, where uh, uh, Crook had uh, had a general, a, a colonel working for him, uh, you know, as a subordinate, uh, Colonel Reynolds, who uh, was, I think, over the hill, and he'd never been a great general, but you know, at the at the time of Powder River, he was he was aging, and um, so. Crook assigned him to attack this this Cheyenne village, and he he dropped the ball. And Crook later court-martialed him, and some of 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 Reynolds' officers were alienated by that whole um, that whole situation, uh, and you know it caused a split within Crook's uh, Crook's force that was exacerbated at the Rosebud, and. Um, Continued, you know, for several years thereafter, and, and you know there was there was a lot of partisanship in the in the in the army in those days, and uh, he was caught up in the middle of it. And yet, in spite of the personality conflicts, and in spite of the arduousness of things like the Horsemeat March, and in spite of the setbacks like Little Bighorn. Crook ultimately succeeds in his goal, doesn't he? Well, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> he, it was it was kind of convoluted, uh, but eventually, he again because of his knowledge of of um, the psychology of the Indians and uh, because of his reputation as being uh, a truth talker. Uh, a, a, somebody that the Indians could trust, uh, he was able to negotiate uh, peace with, with the various uh, um, bands of, of the Sioux and in that way brought an end to the Sioux War, despite the fact that the Sioux had, you know, had won the major, I'd say both major engagements of that, you know, of the war, um, the Custer Battle and the Battle of the Rosebud. Um, Yet they, you know, they had been devastated by the, you know, uh, by the war because of the attacks on their villages and so on. And uh, I, I hadn't mentioned it before, but uh, one of one of the army's techniques during this time was really uh, uh, the introduction of the of the concept of total war, which Sherman had used in the South during the Civil War. Uh, where you know civilians, uh, civilians and villages and towns were fair game uh, in, in warfare. Uh, up until that time, that had not been the case, and um, this concept was used during the Indian Wars, particularly during the Sioux War. Uh, and when the army would attack a village, they would kill women and children and old men and uh you know, non combatants and then burn everything uh and the the Cheyenne in particular were devastated by uh by this because for some reason the you know, most of the attacks that the army was you know uh prosecuted against the 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 enemy during that time were against the Cheyenne villages rather than the Sioux villages perhaps because the Sioux villages were you know more uh, harder to to find. I'm not sure exactly why that was, but uh, when they attacked the Cheyenne villages, they virtually destroyed the entire uh, Cheyenne 
uh, uh, culture, civilization. They they burned uh, all of their weapons, all of their tools, all of their uh, food, uh, all of their buffalo robes, all of their teepees, and the, the Cheyenne were were virtually destitute at the end of this time. And um, under in Indian culture. Uh, they uh, they were you know they looked to the Sioux for hospitality and succor during this period, and you know so the Sioux not only had to provide for them for themselves in a time of war, but they had to provide for their Cheyenne allies as well. So the Sioux were also devastated by this and impoverished by this, and and so uh, when the time came for Crook to negotiate a peace. He was dealing with a with an enemy that was, you know, almost on its knees at that point. You mentioned that you're uh, addressing Geronimo in the third volume. How's the uh, third volume coming along? Well, I've completed the original draft of it, and uh, I'm looking to uh, I'm going to edit it and uh, and get the photographs and the maps and so on together and that process probably will take another six months or so and you know by that time i should be able to you know uh hopefully convince the oklahoma press to to accept the book and and publish it um it's going to cover the geronimo campaign in in over half the book is going to be devoted to the to the uh, his return to Arizona because that was the most interesting and controversial uh, part of his uh, his career, and um, it really goes into the book really goes into his uh, the humanitarian phase of his life when uh, he all of those humanitarian instincts that had motivated him during his early years really came to the fore because at this point the indians had been uh, were no longer the the free living uh, free roaming indians that they had been in his early career but they were confined to reservations and as i've said before most of these reservations were uh, in impoverished areas where they couldn't support themselves the government was very stingy on its res- on its rationing um and um in some cases there was widespread starvation and crook could see all this and he could see that you know all it did was breed more conflict because the indians would break out in desperation and try you know try to get themselves food and uh it it was a situation where he he finally uh recognized that he he, he needed to engage the government in you know in an open policy debate about about the treatment of the of the native americans and um so a lot of the of the book is devoted to his his struggles with this issue and uh i must say that ultimately he was uh he was not successful if you look around you today you can see that well, well, I do look forward to reading it when it comes out. Uh, Paul, thank you very much for taking some time out of your preparations of the next volume to speak with us about Volume 2. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.